The second lesson comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Hear the word of the Lord. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven lampstands, seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life, that is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have affliction. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, these early Christian communities, they really were underdogs in every sense of the word in which we know right now. They didn't have any power. And in fact... If you were to look back, their only connection to power in the first century was their connection to the synagogue. They had some sort of tangential connection to the synagogue because they were first understood to be a sect of Jews. But as time went on, everyone could sort of see that there was a strong distinction between this group called the people of the way, the Christians, and the Jews. And so the Jews started to sort of out them as folks who were not one of them. And that comes up then in the letter to Smyrna. You can see that there's some difficulty around that. 
Now, the Jews, to keep in mind, especially in the place of Ephesus, and Smyrna, by the way, is just about 100 miles north of Ephesus, so they're both sort of in the place that we now know of as Turkey. Ephesus was the center. Smyrna was a port city that was to the north, but they do have some form of connection. Um, At least they're in the same area. And the Jews in that area were actually a legitimate uh, religion of the empire. This meant that they had rights. They were legislated within the Roman Empire as an accepted religion. And this is why in Palestine they could practice their religion separately. They weren't always required. Later, as time went on, it got complicated. But in the first century, they weren't required to give alms and to worship the emperor in the way that other folks were. Okay? They had sort of their own legitimacy. And the Christians were sort of tagging into that a little bit. There was some, it, it's a little bit more blurry than saying it just that way, but they were connected to the Jews because, of course, they were uh, inheritors of the Old Testament. They were following a Jewish Messiah, and the places in which the early apostles went were first to the synagogues. But now, don't forget, in Revelation, we're getting closer to the end of the first century, and the Jews are starting to be tired of it. They're recognizing that this group is different. And so they're starting to out them, okay? And as they out them, they become their own separate group that doesn't really have a name. They do have a name in in their earlier stages. In Antioch, they were given the name Christians. But this name doesn't always migrate to all of the areas of the Roman Empire. So they were often thought of as people of the way. Or they were often thought of as a sect of Jews that followed the Christ, right? But in any case, they were starting to be known of as, known as troublemakers, as instigators, as people who would not just sit down, be quiet, and eat their Roman Empire food. Because that is what was expected of them. And in this area here in West Asia, which we're talking about today, this area in Smyrna and Ephesus, they just didn't fit in. They didn't fit in. Now, if you think about Ephesus, which I know all of you have, right, many times. (laughs) If you think about Ephesus... It's, it's the area in which it has, it's actually quite an ancient city, and it was one of the places where there was this seventh, seventh wonder of the ancient world called the Temple of Artemis. And when the Romans then came over and took over that area, they named their god after Artemis. Artemis is the Greek name, Diana is the Roman name, same person, but it was this incredible temple that is actually still standing. There's pieces of it still there today. It was huge. And it was one of the, um, it was the hub of economy within Ephesus itself. And so there were folks within that city who would have identified themselves with that temple. They would have said, I'm part of Ephesus, the cult of Diana. And if you remember in the book of Acts, when Paul goes to that city in Ephesus, it's one of the places where he has the most trouble. He gets in the way of this worship of Artemis, and they want to throw him out of the city, having that riot that says, great is Artemis, goddess of the Ephesians. If you remember that, that's from, I think it's Acts 17. So this was a city that was dominated by this cult. And when I say cult, I don't mean it in sort of the common language that we use the word cult today. I mean it in terms of culture, 
the culture that was surrounding this worship of Diana. But then, as Rome begins to gain more of its power, and don't forget, I'll keep saying this throughout this series, that we're pushing later into the first century, so Rome is really escalating in terms of its power and becoming much more of an empire in the sense of the power-hungry sense. So this emperor called Domitian comes to power, and he sees Ephesus as one of the hubs of the ancient world, and he says, I'm going to get in on that. There's also going to be a temple for emperor worship in Ephesus as well. So now there's the temple for Diana, and there's the temple for Domitian, the Roman Empire, emperor, excuse me. And so if you did not fit in to these groups of worship, who were you? Who were you? You didn't have a place in the city. You were a troublemaker. You became a problem. And so over the next few weeks, when Jesus, through this book of Revelation, is going to be talking to these churches who were on sort of this Ephesian road, this area where the Roman Empire was really starting to take hold, you can see, like we saw today in the text, that what's going to happen is that there's going to be both an exhortation and there's going to be an affirmation. Actually, it's switched. There's an affirmation that comes first in the letter, and then there's an exhortation. And so as this communication happens, and especially over the next two weeks, I can promise you it's going to get rough in terms of our modern ears of reading these texts. They're going to feel very like, what on earth are we reading here? Keep in mind, try to hold on to the structure, affirmation, exhortation, context, serious Roman Empire worship happening in and around these letters, okay? Now, our modern eyes might balk a little bit at these exhortations, but I just want to give you a quick example that might help us to understand them a little bit. So when my children were small, it was really important for me that they learned how to swim. That was a strong value of mine, and I grew up loving the water, and I wanted the same thing to happen to them. But when you're teaching a child to swim, if you've ever done that, you know that it's a very delicate balance, right? The priority has to be, at all times, that they enjoy the water, that they love the water. They have to have a good experience in the water, but... In order for that to happen, there are some lessons that they have to abide by, right? There's some firm sort of concrete handholds that you have to have. There are lessons that become essential to teach. And the first is that you can't breathe underwater. Okay, don't try to breathe underwater. That inevitably happens. They breathe underwater, they come up choking, and you have to explain over and over again, we don't breathe underwater, holding your breath, right? It's an essential lesson for enjoying the water. And then the second one is this, try to relax. Ironically, the more you can relax in the water, the safer that you'll be. If you tense up and get scared, that's when the edge of the pool seems really, really far away. So when I try to teach my children to swim, I teach them not out of malice, not because there's something that I want to hammer into them. 
even though the lessons are firm, but I teach them for the sake of love. I teach them because I want them to understand and to love the water. That's what I want. The lessons, the exhortations, one might say, are not criticisms, but they're corrections. Corrections are done out of love. And so as we read through these letters, what I want us to see is that these exhortations are are corrections, meant to help the church get back on track, figure out who you are. It's a difficult world out there. Who are you so that you can get back on track so that you can love the water? Okay, that's the goal that's happening in these letters. Now, I want to get quickly to what's happening in the text today in this message to the church in Ephesus. Jesus sees right away that this is a church that has been suffering. And if you can think about the context that we painted earlier, it makes sense why this church has been suffering, right? And so Jesus sees right away and he looks at them and says, I see your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. And oh, they must have had patient endurance to be able to be a community there in Ephesus where there were so many things that were competing for their allegiance. In other words, I know that you are in a place that is not easy for you to be. You are not in a place that allows you to be who you are, that allows you to worship in the way that you want to worship. And in fact, I know that you are in a place that has been dangerous for you. And it was. It was a dangerous place for these early Christians because they weren't able to promise allegiance to either one of the areas where the temple was. So the question that the early church has to manage is how do they navigate their allegiance in the midst of a world that demands allegiance in one of two ways. Either worship to Diana, which is basically the economy, that's how it functioned in the early world, or worship to Domitian, which is to the governance, to the empire of Rome, to the sort of big picture of where the empire was going. Those were the choices that the early church had in Ephesus. How were they to manage allegiance when those were the only choices that they were given? How were they to offer allegiance to another to disengage from empire worship, to disengage from economic worship? You see, worship in the ancient world wasn't just sort of a thing that you did on Sunday. It reoriented your whole life. It wasn't just the, th- the words that you said on a certain day of the week. It was the way in which you practiced where your money went. It was the way in which you put together the goods that you offered to the world. It was the silversmith who actually made the statues of Diana so that he could sell those in the marketplace in Ephesus and create the economic engine that fueled the place of Ephesus. So if you did not buy into the economy, if you did not buy into the governance of Ephesus, how did you fit? What was your allegiance? To be a Christian 
To be a person of the way in a context like that, it wasn't just like fitting into a different culture. It was basically like being a person of treason within the city itself. So the challenges that this group was facing was extremely strong. If you think about what they were up against, this tiny little church, this big temple, this big empire, what were they in comparison? Not very big. And yet, the challenge that Jesus offers to this community is actually quite astounding. He says, in the middle of all of this, you are not to forget to love. That's the message. He says, don't abandon the love that you had at first. This I have against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. So in the midst of all of these struggles that this church is facing, the message and the exhortation that Jesus gives this community is do not forget to love. You see, when suffering robs us of our love, then it has won. Then it has won. It has taken everything that we have. Our ability to love is our most sacred human act. And so the call to this group at Ephesus is that even in the middle of their suffering, they are still called to love. And the word for love in this Greek text is one of the deepest ones that we have. It's that word agape. Now, if you're familiar with those Greek words for love, you'll know that agape is the word that is translated charity in other contexts. It's the only word that we have in Greek that's attributed to the divine acts of God when God offers God's self in sacrificial, self-giving love. That is the agape word. And so when Jesus is talking to the church in Ephesus, he says, do not abandon not just sort of this effervescent love, but do not abandon agape. The hard act, the charity act, the self-giving act. That's the act that Jesus is calling his church back to. And in fact, what we learn through this letter to Ephesus is that love is actually the strongest marker of the church that we have. There's this place later in the letter where Jesus says, if you, if you don't do that, then I'm going to come and remove the lampstand. Don't forget that lampstand is a marker of the church. So one could speculate that without that act of charity, without that act of love, that one wonders how the church is to make its presence known in the world. And then Jesus has another message to this church at Smyrna. Smyrna's close to Ephesus, about 100 miles away. It's a little bit further north. It was a port city. It did not have a temple to Diana, but what it did have was one of the biggest empire cults in the ancient world. And when I say empire cult, what I mean is that these 
sort of cities along the western coast of Turkey, they had to plug in to the Roman Empire because that was the way that their economic engine turned, right? So they created these huge temples to the person who was ruling Rome at the time so that they can say, I'm there, I'm bought in, I'm connected, send your ports over here so that we can keep the trading going over to the east. It was their way of plugging in to what was happening in the ancient world. It was their allegiance. And what Jesus says to the church at Smyrna is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You see, as we find out through the book of Revelation, which ultimately, as you read it, even though it has all of this prophetic apocalyptic language, even though it's hard to understand and it comes with sort of all of these prickly sentences that are difficult for our modern ears to hear, and they really are difficult. We're not going to try to candy it up here. It's a difficult book to get through. But ultimately, the book of Revelation is about allegiance. It's about worship. It's about when all of the world is functioning in and around economy, in and around governance, in and around empire. How do you live your life in that context as a person who is a person of the way? How do you do it? Because it's not easy. It's not easy. But Revelation will name over and over and over again that the most powerful thing that can be in and opposed to empire is love. Is love. Being fearless, faithful, committed unto death. Knowing who you belong to because you are clear where your allegiance lies. This can prepare you for anything Revelation is going to teach us. Now, I'm not going to speculate about the empires of our day. I am not going to speculate about the cults that we have built. And again, I don't mean sort of the colloquial way in which we use it. I mean it in terms of the archaeological way that we understand that word, which has to do with the way that we order groups of people around values. I am not going to speculate about the empires or the cults of our day. We all know them. And perhaps, and understandably so, we are all afraid of them. This is part of how we all get along within our world. But empire, as Revelation is going to point us to say, unlike governance is not interested in merely keeping the peace, but empire is interested in power, expansion at all costs, and greed. You see, that's why the church had to take odds with empire. Not because it was just a matter of helping everybody get along, but because it started creeping its tentacles into how we saw the value of human life. And the church had to say no. They had to say no. Love, Revelation says, 
Fearlessness, Revelation says, knowing whose you are. This is the antidote to empire. The warning of Revelation is not to let empire take place in your heart. Don't give it that space of allegiance, whatever it is, whatever it is, because it does not deserve you. That's the real story of Revelation. The story of Revelation is that the one who deserves you is the one who has been faithful unto death. The one who deserves you is the one who selflessly gave himself and who goes through death for you. The one who deserves you is the living one. This is the one who loves you and who is worthy of you. You see, Revelation is ultimately about the fact that empire might be strong and powerful. It might have all the might that it can muster. But it does not deserve human allegiance. It doesn't. Because we are worth more than that. And not just because I say so, but because Jesus has said so. And that's the reason why in the book of Revelation, he is the one who was and is and is to come because all allegiance is given to the one who gives himself to us. That's the one who deserves us. That's the one who loves us. That's the one who is worthy. So friends, this week, do not forget whose you are. You are not the empires. Allegiance gets confusing. But we must not forget whose we are. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we need this text. It is hard, it is difficult, it ruffles our feathers, and yet we need it. It cuts to the core of what it means to be human and questions our allegiance and reminds us that we need to get back on track, to remember how to love, to remember how to be fearless, even in the face of the biggest things that we know of. We can only do this through you. Remind us whose we are in your name. Amen. Friends, let us stand.